Welcome to Sofo Security Chat Chat number 177 for the 17th of December 2014. As you've already noticed, I am not Chester. It's me again, John Shire, filling in for Chester while he's away on vacation. Yes, he's gone south for the winter, hasn't he? He has gone slightly south for the winter. Not properly south, but he is in the tropics, I hear. And as you've already guessed, joining me as usual is Sofo security expert Paul Ducklin. Hello, Paul. Hello, John. So I shouldn't have blurted out my opinion of Chester's vacationing before you had introduced me. I do apologize. So let's rely on that expertise a little bit and talk in, in some detail about the Sony kerfuffle that's been going on for the last couple of weeks now. I think uh, this is one of the stories, Paul, that's really popular right now and is being talked about in many different circles. I turn on the TV or I read the newspaper or I browse the internet and then there's some mention of Sony somewhere. What I think is really interesting about all the airtime that's being devoted to the Sony story is the fact that we really don't know a lot. We, we know some. We know that there was a potential breach. And I think we're going to overuse the word alleged in, in this particular discussion because I think that's really where we stand, isn't it? We just really don't know what happened. Yes, breaches of this scale, <laughs> alleged breaches of this scale, on a network of this size you know, with as much data as was lying around, apparently, they're almost guaranteed to be the never-ending story, aren't they? I was sort of thinking about it the other day and imagining this is a problem that archaeologists must face. In amongst the stuff you want to dig out, you're going to find a load of ancillary material, which may or may not be interesting or important. So it's going to be very, very hard to say, well, this was the breach and this is exactly how it happened. Yeah, and as usual with, with breaches of this type, uh, the whole what was stolen is really difficult to get your head around because, you know, unlike somebody breaking into your house and leaving a TV-sized hole in your entertainment unit, <laughs> yeah. you really can't tell exactly what was stolen in some cases. So it does take a long time to, to sift through all of the various data that, you know, are being gathered by your security systems and your other logging systems to actually really determine exactly what the problem was. And of course, if there really was such a giant breach where the hackers were wandering around almost at will, that raises the other specter of how do you know what to trust amongst your logs? A uh, very good point. Yeah. So uh, as we've seen in, in many other breaches, th that forensic piece is, is really sometimes very difficult to tease out. This week, Sony released a letter uh, from their lawyers uh, aimed at the media outlets who are publishing the data. You can sort of look at the issue from two sides where, well, you know, Sony has this intellectual property. Some of the stuff that was stolen was indeed copyrighted material. Some of it were innocent email communications that were private between employees and some of the people that they communicate with. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, people have no business in publishing that information. The flip side of that, which a lot of other people are talking about, is sort of the freedom of the press and the ability to say, well, it's out there in the public domain now. So... We might as well publish it and let people know exactly you know, what this data is. Uh, where do you fall on this issue, Paul? I sort of hear the idea that you can teach people a lot, and indeed one can learn a lot from seeing the sorts of stuff that got stolen. So I kind of feel for Sony in all of this, but I guess, unfortunately, it's not a very good look when they've been breached and there's all this controversy about how much got stolen and you know, how bad security might have been then to come out with yet more legal threats. So I don't think it's done them any favours. On the other hand, if you go down to the pub and buy goods from some bloke you meet at the bar, 
and you know they're stolen, my understanding is in most countries, you're committing a crime. You're not allowed to buy or receive stolen goods knowing they're stolen. You know that they're not yours and you jolly well know the guy selling them to you doesn't have the right to pass title to you. And I think you can make exactly the same argument with data that you know is not yours. A good point. And, and, um, and speaking of secret codes, it seems like uh, that is what is needed these days when it comes to figuring out exactly who will be getting the latest update from Google's Android operating system. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so 5.01 was released for some. Uh, I, I am a user of the Nexus devices of, uh, from Google. And I've got a Nexus 4 and a Nexus 5. Uh, so far, both devices have the 5.0 version of Lollipop. I have yet to see the 5.01 update over the air, or OTA as uh, we like to say. That doesn't mean it's not available, because if you actually look on Google's uh, factory firmware page, uh, there actually is a version available for my handsets. Uh, as you dig into it even further, you notice that, uh, you know, the, basically the, the whole ecosystem's fragmented, right? You've got all these devices that are supposed to get the latest and greatest from Google, and I don't know who has the secret decoder ring for this, but uh, you just can't tell when these images are coming down. I have a Nexus that's more recent than yours, and it's still on 4.4.4. I find that there are older official Google devices that have the latest firmware, and some of the latest devices had the older firmware, some of them not even up to Lollipop at all yet. As you said, it, it's really hard to get your head around how you are supposed to be at the cutting edge of security by having the latest version and the latest patches. And if Google can't even get it right for its own devices, its Nexus family, what sort of lesson does that teach to all the third-party vendors of Android devices who famously have all sorts of versions, some going back years? You're right. It, it does cause a lot of confusion. And when it comes to the non-Nexus devices or the non-stock devices, you know, you're you're anywhere from you know six months to never from getting the latest operating system. I think you brought up a really good point when you said some of the newer devices are stuck on older firmware and some of the older devices are on newer firmware. If you're a system administrator that is implementing you know a bring your own device policy into your environment. And you've got to, and you know, you, you say, well, I'm going to allow these set of devices to be enrolled in the system. And a user comes up to you with a, a compliant device, compliant in the sense that it's one of the devices that you picked to be allowed to be enrolled, but they're on an older version of firmware. Is it okay for them to root their Android device in order to get it up to the latest version of firmware so that they can be more secure and you know, arguably maybe more productive with some of the new features. It's, it's a, an interesting conundrum, if you ask me. It is, because I'm sure that you and I, if we were approached by anybody uh, using, say, Sophos Mobile Control, uh, who said, look, should I allow jailbreaking? Should I allow routing? What are the benefits? What are the risks? So we'd have to say, don't do it. But then, as you say, what if genuinely somebody can take an older handset that's their own, that's perfectly serviceable, and actually make it, ironically, more secure by routing it so they can get security fixes that they know do not exist in their version. Where does that put system administrators? I can't think of some standard advice of, of, of how to solve that problem, um, particularly when I know that some of the vulnerabilities that are patched in versions of Android that are still current for some older devices represent quite serious security flaws. 
Yeah, if, if you were to ask me if I was in charge of one of these programs, I think, and it's easy for me to say that in a thought experiment, but I think I would, I would rather err on the side of caution and say, you know what, there, there just won't be any rooting uh, or jailbreaking of devices in my infrastructure uh, for the sole reason that basically rooting or jailbreaking a device, you are, you're breaking the security of that device. Yes, and I guess the flip side of that is to urge people who are bringing their own device and do think they have a fantastic case for being allowed to use unusual apps or to have their phone in a non-standard state. If your IT guys say, look, we love your enthusiasm, but we kind of don't want you to do it, don't take that too personally. Don't rail against it. It is a difficult balancing act for a system administrator. And the more variables there are in the equation, the harder it is for them to solve it. Yeah, and, and as we speak about mobile devices, you know, and specifically at this time of the year where it's the holiday season for, for many of our listeners, uh, one of the things that became apparent last year, and, uh, you know, I, I, I was looking at an infographic from our friends over at Stay Safe Online, they're talking about, you know, users are increasingly using their mobile devices for doing their holiday shopping. There are still some pitfalls that people need to watch out for. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is just the fact of using, you know, open public Wi-Fi. Particularly since in many shopping centers, the free Wi-Fi is something that it's just open and unencrypted. What it means is that anyone else in that shopping center can pretty much read all the contents of every packet. In fact, even if it's an encrypted wireless network, if it's just got a pre-shared key, the same key for everybody, then provided they're around and sniffing when you join the network, they can decrypt your traffic anyway. Somebody next to you at the coffee shop or even at the other end of the shopping mall could actually, and very probably is, uh, watching out for interesting transactions and infra interesting information being shared. And uh, as Chester and I have mentioned many times in previous podcasts, we also have that problem that it's not unusual for the mobile version of an app not to be up to security scratch uh, compared to, say, using a regular browser on a laptop. Yeah, and, and as demonstrated by Chester in some of the recent uh, PR videos that he's done, you know, that some of the kit that you can buy for relatively low cost uh, make this man-in-the-middle activity really easy to accomplish. And so... It's just best that uh, when you are doing online shopping that uh, you do it over a, a trusted, secure channel. Um, there are other scams, too, when it comes to you know the holiday season that people, I think, really need to watch out for, which, uh, you know, the bait-and-switch scam really comes to mind. And Absolutely. We know that if you haven't got an iPhone 6 already, you desperately want one in time for Christmas. Folks, there is no free iPhone 6. Exactly. So when it comes to bait and switch scams, just like anything, there's no such thing as free beer. There's no such thing as free iPhones either. One of the last things we can talk about when it comes to staying safe and secure online is the ever popular password discussion. Uh, we've just wrapped up the 12 days competition at uh, nakedsecurity.sophos.com, uh, where the, the last, you know, day 12 was basically a tale of two passwords and, uh, you were kind of riffing on some of the, the, the stories that have been published this year. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, many listeners will be familiar with the song of the 12 days of Christmas. And we've had a little jingle each day. And the one for day 12 that I did said, on the 12th day of Christmas, I made a little vow. I'll stop sharing passwords right now, particularly if they're passwords that you 
have to type in on a mobile device where it's comparatively more difficult, the tendency is, well, let's pick something that's short and easy to type and let's get something where I get you know used to the muscle memory or whatever you call it. So I'll just use the same password on every site. It's going to end in tears, folks, because it means that if a crook gets one password, he's got the whole lot. And so we've got a video on Naked Security you can watch called How to Pick a Proper Password and an excellent piece by you about how to choose a password manager. So do go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and have a look at John's article. It's entitled Five Minute Fix, How to Use a Password Manager. What what I really like about the article is the fact that the comments are starting to pick up, and and what's great is is the user community is chiming in as well and and adding to the conversation. Uh, so I do urge if if you do read the article to scroll down to the comments and see what uh, some of our readers have to say on that as well. And so with that, we will conclude the Sophos Security Chatless Chat number one seventy seven. For all the latest news, please go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com, and if you would like more of these podcasts as well as some of our techno podcasts you can go over to soundcloud.com/sophosecurity and until next time stay secure <laughs>